It's 2008, early in the morning, and Karen Dark is about to take on her biggest challenge yet. When I saw it, I just thought, this is absolutely nuts. Like, I just can't do it. A sheer rock face, nearly a kilometre high, and the climbing world's white whale, El Capitan. And as Karen's standing there, looking up at this wall of granite, she suddenly gets this feeling. I think trauma re-emerged that I wasn't expecting to re-emerge. Trauma? Because Karen is no ordinary rock climber. A few years earlier, she was out traversing along a sea cliff when she fell. The accident meant Karen would never walk again. And now, looking up at El Capitan, that accident, that day, it all came flooding back. My body was sort of propelled into fear and I got all the reactions and feelings that go with that. Her palms were sweating, heart beating out of her chest, and her mind was replaying the worst-case scenario again and again and again. And I very quickly knew that I had to control my fear rather than let it control me. I'm Rob Pope. And from Red Bull, this is How To Be Superhuman. In this week's episode, we're speaking to legendary Paralympian Karen Dark, who shot to fame as the poster girl for Rio's 2016 Games, competing in the fiercely competitive world of hand cycling. But before all that, before Rio, before even her accident on that sea cliff, she was just a young student with an insatiable appetite for adventure and a mission to climb big things. Yeah, I took up climbing when I was at school and we had a couple of teachers at school who really liked to climb and took some of us out, especially when I was in the sixth form. And then I became a student at Leeds University and joined the climbing club and that was kind of an introduction to People who were doing bigger stuff and going to the Alps and I just, you know, I was just like a kid with big eyes. I just wanted to go there and climb things. So um went out there with a book and a few friends. We had no idea what we were doing. We were just kind of standing on a glacier with an instruction book on how to do crevasse rescue and kind of basically looking at photocopies from the book and instructing each other what to do. Uh, so it wasn't just a typical stroll on a glacier, though. You were heading towards a pretty iconic peak. I guess there's something in there about my personality because as soon as we saw the Matterhorn, decided we are going to try and climb it and similarly Mont Blanc. So perhaps foolish, the naivety of youth just to look at mountains and, and want to be there and to go there because now I know kind of all the objective dangers that there are and rockfall and avalanches and naivety can kind of lead to challenges that you would never undertake otherwise, I think. And then in 1993, she was leading a climb just outside of Aberdeen on these big cliffs next to the ocean. And I was the first up the climb and it was really too hard for me. I, I should have just come back down and let the guy I was climbing with, who had huge shoulders and was very strong, let him be the first one to take the rope up. But I was, again, young and stubborn and um, perhaps foolish. And so she continues to climb when all of a sudden the rock face changes. And now she's hanging there stretching every sinew of her body to just try and hold on. 
and I realised that I was going to fall off. My arms got tired and I ran out of strength. So I shouted below to take the rope in. And I don't really remember anything else, but what I do know is that I took a swing from the overhang. The last bit of protection that I'd put into the rock to hold the rope came away. I swung and hit the ground and woke up three or four days later in hospital, paralysed and with all these stories of the dramatic rescue, which was by helicopter and, uh, yeah, from the sea cliffs. How did that feel when you when you came round? Because, you know, you're in a very strange environment and, you know, the last thing you knew you were in a rock face. You know, I think the body has a way of... It's very intelligent and even if you're unconscious, there's what, you know, your body's communicating with itself. So it wasn't, it wasn't like you woke up and it was a shock, like, where am I? I think I was drugged up to the hilt in intensive care, very uh, out of it really, just dazed and gradually came round and... Immediately, one of the members of staff or the doctor, the consultant in charge of my care came and said, you know, you've broken your neck and your back. Your neck, we've got stable, but your back, you're paralysed. You may regain some movement, but it doesn't look likely given the given the x-ray and the amount that the bones have shifted. So I think the, the most similar process that most people will be accustomed to is a form of bereavement. And you just uh, gradually, it seeps out, really. It wasn't like a massively shocking moment. It's just uh, a gradual process of adaption and grieving yeah i can't imagine it was like you know it was something that you you, you were aware of the dangers of this because you'd even you'd, you'd talk to a friend the previous evening about how you'd cope if something like that had happened which is you know incredibly portentous you know sort of yeah, how did that a, unfold it was a bit spooky really i was i'd been out to the pub with some friends and one of them had a loose mudguard on his bike my family have neighbours and family friends who the father was paralysed when his mudguard went into his wheel and threw him over the handlebars. So I just told my friend to tighten his mudguard up so he didn't have any kind of accident and told the story. And then we just had this very brief conversation going, I can't imagine how that would be. Like, And my literal words were, I can't imagine anything worse than being paralysed. I'd rather be dead than paralysed. <laughs> so um, little did I know yeah. that 12 hours later, that's what would happen. And of course... I soon discovered that I wouldn't rather be dead, but um, I think we don't know what we're capable of coping with until it's until we find ourselves in those circumstances. To be honest, exactly. Well, you know, so I hope you know people can take comfort from that because you were just at the start of a journey. You know, you were moved to a spinal rehab unit, and it all began from there. Like, what happened? Like, what were your surroundings like when you were there, and how did the process begin? Well, I think I'm probably quite lucky because I was now paralysed twenty five or more years ago. And to be honest, it was kind of fun being in hospital. I was there for six months and I was in a ward full of women and men in together, all ages, all all shapes and forms and sizes and all kinds of in- reasons why people were there with spinal cord injuries. And it just was kind of very laid back, like once a week, once you were up and in a wheelchair, there was a kind of excursion to the to the pub up the road and Friday night was fish and chip night. <laughs> so even though you were going through, everyone was going through some really tough stuff individually and of course there were moments when it was really difficult and you got a bit low. Because you were in this open ward with lots of other people on a, pro, you know, on a similar process or at different stages, it was really helpful because you could kind of support each other and laugh together and I think these days when I've been into spinal injuries hospitals more recently, they're a lot more kind of private or private rooms and perhaps you don't get that team morale and that support that I had when I was in hospital from the kind of group feeling. 
How did you find you know, once you once you were home that you know sort of you could find sort of um, somewhere particularly for you in in sport? You know what? How did you how did you get back into it? I suppose I was quite lucky because I was I was still you know I was only twenty one when I broke my back, so I was a student, and so I just started joining all of these clubs at the university and seeing what I could try and do. So I joined the canoe club and the gliding club and. I still had friends and connections with the climbing club, so even though I couldn't hike up the mountains anymore, I used to go away for weekends with them in the minibus and do my own thing in my wheelchair. So I suppose I was just lucky to be surrounded by people and opportunities to be active and um, be involved in the outdoors. And lots of my friends were were inclined that way, so people were really up for some silliness, if you know what I mean, and just some experimentation. How how did you take to hand cycling? Um, So I suppose I spent some time thinking about what's something that I could do that would be fun in the outdoors and give me access to nature and also be able to do with friends. And hand cycling didn't really exist back then. I probably had a couple of the world's first hand bikes ever made. My tandem was made in Australia by a kind of retired mad chemist that made crazy bikes in his shed (laughs) near Melbourne. So I ordered that on the internet and it was just this massive adventure going to pick up this giant bike that's about three and a half meters long that you pedal with your arms on the front and your legs at the back i thought if someone's attached to me on a tandem then they can't get bored waiting for me we have to chat and we have to be together so um i had this dream to cycle across the himalayas so me and a few friends ended up riding from kyrgyzstan kazakhstan across into china and then over the the himalayas down into pakistan just a couple of years after I was paralysed on this crazy tandem. Yeah, well, obviously, sort of, you know, that's an adventure for most people. Like, sort of, wh- where where was your head at when you were going there? Did you have any doubts? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's now since then, there's been so many things I've gone and done, and every single one comes with a raft of doubts to go out into nature and wilderness again and, and rely on yourself and be independent. We didn't have any vehicles or any support. We were just cycling and carrying all our own camping gear and things to survive. You weren't so focused at this point. There was the epic Himalayan trip, but there were also sort of other adventures. For example, you spent a month crossing Greenland by Sitski. Like, can you talk us through some of that, like the the particular needs? So that was um, 13 or 14 years after I was paralysed. So it was a long time, long way down the road. And I could certainly never have considered anything like that before then, I don't think. I would never have considered it if it wasn't for a friend, Anna, and her husband, Passy, who's very hardcore Finnish from the far Arctic. It seemed like the most crazy idea to me at the time because I was so terrible at sit skiing and um, was really worried about things like my personal care, how I was going to go to the toilet in the middle of an ice cap, it was minus 30, or how I would stay warm because when you're paralysed, you can't regulate your body temperature. So there were, yeah, I mean, there's a million reasons not to go and a million safety reasons not to go. But I've realised that if I just work through all of my fears and doubts one by one and try and find a little solution for each one, then that kind of builds confidence and makes it safer and you can finally reach a point where you feel confident to go into a an environment which otherwise might have seemed very intimidating. So how did you prepare for that trip? It took us two years and we, we went and stayed in northern Finland a few times to train um, I had a special sit ski made, mainly when I was in Scotland to train because there's obviously not really any snow here year round. I just went out in my wheelchair. I went and met the Norwegian cross country ski team, and I found out how they train in summer. So they go in a wheelchair and use ski poles with kind of tips on them to, that stick into tarmac, and then they kind of pole along. 
yeah, I'd get in my wheelchair and go and pole like 20k around the lanes and things. It's kind of a bit crazy looking back, but well worth it. <laughs> the trip itself, like how did that go? Like sort of, how did you cope physically, mentally, you know, with your particular issues? Um, so physically, just had to be really, really systematic about everything from managing catheters and had special flap inside the tent and a special toilet seat made so I could sit on that above the snow. So lots of kind of attention to detail, lots of bits of technology and physically just the toughness of it, I suppose, we just had to be really structured. So we had between eight and ten legs a day. A leg meant skiing for 50 minutes and then, well, we tried 55 in a five-minute break, but we always went over the five minutes, so we kind of changed it to 50 and 10. And in that 10 minutes or, or less, you have to do everything from eat, drink, we do whatever you need to do to get going again for another sort of hour of exercise. So we were just really routine and sort of systematic about it and had this kind of system so that everyone had to abide by it. Otherwise, um, you would get frostbite or be hanging around waiting for people. And then mentally, yeah, it was a big eye-opener for me. It was mentally probably the most difficult thing I'd ever done at that point in time. To do that kind of for 10 hours a day when you're exhausted and you just think you can't go on and... Um, obviously that's challenging and then it's just flat and white so I don't work for the Glute Wheeling Tourist Board but the middle of Greenland is really quite boring <laughs> it's a beautiful beautiful <laughs> giant piece of whiteness and there's nothing to look at so whilst it's an incredible place to be it's also not stimulating so the first week I think we all spent the week basically thinking about what to think about almost kind of panicking about what to think about because we're so used to just being busy in our heads, aren't we, in this in this world? So it actually turned into a super, super special and kind of transformative experience because for most of it, we just ended up dropping into this very, very silent place. And I think it was probably like going on a on a silent meditation for a month. <laughs> and um, on the other side of that, some quite special things and uh, change came out of it that I couldn't otherwise have of kind of cerebrally managed, if that makes sense. Yeah, because next up was stimulating. We're heading to California and we're heading to El Capitan. Tell us about that. Yeah, a couple of years later, um, Andy, who'd been on the trip in Greenland, suggested that I should try climbing again. And it's clearly not something that had ever really appealed, to be honest. And I'd lost, I'd lost friends in climbing accidents since I had my accident. So at first, I'd, my response was like, don't be crazy. And then I realised... As with most things, when someone puts an idea in my head that it wouldn't go away and there was something about it that appealed. And I guess maybe it was just sort of that element of facing fear, of going back to something that I'd left and seeing how it felt. And also El Capitan is just this iconic, incredible piece of rock. It's I'm a geologist originally, so you know it's a place that's uh, always held appeal. It's a kilometre high, it's just a sheer face of overhanging granite and as a 10 year old kid we'd lived in America for a year and I'd seen it and just been absolutely in awe of it so the idea of going back there and having some attempt to climb it did have some appeal even though I was also absolutely petrified. So Karen threw herself into the planning she assembled a group of climbing partners she began to figure out the technical requirements. For the uninitiated climbing's actually a very leg heavy discipline so how exactly does someone in a wheelchair climb a 9,000 foot vertical rock? 
Well, it basically involves her performing over 4,000 pull-ups, attached to a pulley system that was in turn attached to El Cap, therefore dragging herself up the mountain. The maths is staggering. However, it was only when she encountered this geographical beast in person that the enormity of what she was doing sunk in. When I saw it, I just thought, this is absolutely nuts. Like, I just can't do it. But climbing is a team sport, and she couldn't let the other members of her party down. Once we got more than, I don't know, 20 metres off the ground, I realised how petrified I was of heights and how crazy this whole sport seemed to be. Her mind was racing. Trauma re-emerged that I wasn't expecting to re-emerge. Her brain had done a good job of hiding away the mental pain of that day 15 years ago. You know, some people get panic attacks or post-traumatic stress and maybe going back into that kind of environment where I'd had my accident triggered some of that type of stuff which I hadn't anticipated or been in an environment that had been triggered by before. This was all new to her. My body was sort of propelled into fear and I got all the reactions and feelings that go with that from the kind of raised heart rate and sweaty hands and all the kind of physical symptoms that come when you're mentally in a fearful place. Yeah, I just had to start to kind of manage that, I suppose. Once we were up, we were up there and we were on the route and I was part of a small team, so it wasn't going to work if I freaked out and I very quickly knew that I had to control my fear rather than let it control me. But how? How do you do that? You're on this climb up a rock that's like nothing you've ever seen before. It's taken the lives of so many climbers. How can you control the fear? I suppose I just realised and played around with my thoughts and replaced negative ones with more positive ones. If I caught myself running a horror film in my head about what might happen, I'd just stop it, just like you would stop a film and, you know, turn off one and put on another and put in something much more pleasant rather than the horror film. Can you describe how hard it was and just how you got up the face of El Capitan? One option was just to do neat pull-ups, so literally one-to-one pulling my body weight up the rock face, but that was not feasible. It was too heavy. I'm not, you know, I'm not great at pull-ups. We put a pulley in the system, which basically meant it shifted the ratio. I've I've forgotten now, but like three to one or something. So I was only pulling a fraction of my body weight by using um, the ropes and and pulleys so that that took away some of that resistance. Physically, it was nowhere near as hard as crossing Greenland, but mentally, it just brought up all this kind of old fear or trauma that I, you know, was probably locked somewhere in my body from falling off a cliff face that I couldn't even consciously remember. Was it a healing process? I think any time you have a good cry and it feels like you've you've got something out of your body, then it's probably quite healing. So there's a few cries happened on the wall. So it must have uh, got something useful out of my body, I think. But it was certainly a very incredible process to to be able to take control of my mind and and therefore to control the situation and my emotions around it. I think sometimes it's easy to feel like your mind or your emotions control you. Whereas actually, you know, there's something much bigger than that in charge, you know, our heart or our spirit or whatever. And actually, if we tell our brain, if we feed our brain what we need it to hear, what's more positive to hear, then the things that it 
sometimes tells us or the, the, the kind of negative talk that it can give us, you can override all of that. And Karen took those invaluable mental and physical lessons she learned on the face of El Cap into the competitive world of hand cycling. It didn't take her long to reach Team GB and the start line of London 2012, where she won a shock silver. Before she knew it, the games were done and everyone's attention had turned to Rio. Karen had gone from Paralympic novice to poster girl for UK sport. Suddenly I had I was offered um, a UK sport grant to keep on training and I kind of wasn't sure just for a little while and then UK sport ended up using my picture on a poster looking for new talent for Rio and it was basically a picture of me with a thing saying, have you got what it takes? So I was looking at myself, asking myself <laughs> in this picture, have you got what it takes? And I decided, hey, maybe maybe I should and maybe I have and maybe I should get to Rio and um, and see if I could upgrade it to a gold. Was your approach any different? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it can't not be. Like, when you're learning, it's just a constant learning curve, isn't it? And the game is just upping all the time. The standard is going up all the time. So it seemed just this incredibly tough challenge. And I suppose that attracted to me in a way. But there were also times along the way when I just felt like I was going to break and... Um, a year before Rio, I had to have emergency surgery on a huge abscess that had appeared. It was like 30 centimetres across inside my, off my intestine. And who knows, you know, how healthy it is to be pushing your body to the extreme. I really don't think it is healthy. I think balance is, is where it's at. It took it out of me, but I did train differently. And I really started to look at, push the limits, I suppose, of everything from the technology of the bike. Williams Formula One ended up building me a special bike that was more aerodynamic. I just took everything to kind of next level, really, from training to nutrition to recovery to bike design, the whole works. Did you feel at that start line at Rio, you would actually reach the point of being superhuman? So on the start line in Rio, I felt everything but superhuman. I had done something really weird to my shoulder a week before the race, so just literally the day before getting on the plane to Rio. So in the Paralympic Village, I couldn't even push my wheelchair around because my shoulder was in such a bad state. I was in physio every day with the doctors, getting things iced and taped and just managing the pain. I had to get the legs chopped off my bed because it was too high for me to get into with my injured shoulder. But throughout that, I had some kind of weird... Almost, it wasn't like a belief. It was just this feeling that that this race was mine. Something like a year or more out from Rio, I just thought this is my chance. If ever there was one, it's a flat course that works really well with my physiology. I'm tall, so for a woman, I'm quite heavy, and I just kind of thought if it's ever going to happen, it's going to be here. And this feels like this is the one. And somehow, I'm meant to win this. So maybe being superhuman is about being in that right place in your sort of when your head and your heart and everything is aligned and what you're thinking, what you're feeling and what you're saying and doing are all lined up. Um, and that's how it felt for Rio. I've got a feeling I'm going to enjoy this ride. Can you take us on a whistle-stop tour of the race? Two laps, straight down the beachfront along the Rio shore, a dead turn at the far end, back up to where, towards where you started. There was a little side loop with kind of a couple of sharp turns in it another dead turn back at the far end and then kind of repeat the loop. So it was two loops with a dead turn at each end and a little kind of arm going off it. 
So Karen waited at the start line. She was in a seated position on a chair attached to two wheels at the back and one at the front. Her fingers were poised on two handles. All her upper body strength would be needed to turn them as quickly as she could. This was the time trial. Her enemy was the clock. And a lot had gone into getting her to this point. She set off, her mind only focused on one thing. Winning. I think it was the first lap on the dead turn. Um, It was a really tight turn on the road. The first real test of the most important time trial of her life. And my wheels went onto the cobbles off the side of the road and everything rattled and my chain fell off. Disaster. Which meant I had to physically stop, pick the chain up, put it back on and then get going again. And at that point, I just thought, I can't believe it. I'm supposed to win this race and now now that's not going to happen because my chain fell off and I've lost 30 seconds and you don't lose 30 seconds in a race like this and still make the podium. In such a competitive field... Karen thought her Olympics were over. But I just pushed on and just thought, I've got to keep going, just give it everything. And I did. I crossed the finish line, not knowing the results. In the time trial, you have to wait till everybody's finished and then just wait for the results board to pop up. She didn't even bother looking. I threw a towel over my head and I just thought, that's it. I didn't even make the podium and I was supposed to win it. And uh, the team manager came over and ripped the towel off my head and shouted out gold, and it's still kind of unbelievable to this day that that happened. You achieve gold. That is the pinnacle of any sports person in the world. Where did you go from there? How can you go anywhere from there? Well, the truth is, I came home, I couldn't face doing any of the Paralympic celebrations, any parades, any sort of engagements that we were invited to. I was absolutely exhausted and kind of broken and burnt out. I was facing shoulder surgery. I had no energy to really even spend time with friends. I just laid on a sofa a lot and felt really like a flat battery, completely flat. And all I knew to do was go out into nature and the wilderness because that's what always heals me mentally and physically. And fortunately, did have a trip planned with a couple of teammates. And pre-Rio, we decided we would need a strategy for possible post-Olympic depression, which is what everyone talks about, and that we would have an adventure. So My friend Steve Bate, who also won won gold in Rio, he's got a visual impairment. And my friend Jacko Van Gass, who lost an arm in Afghanistan and was on the squad, but unfortunately missed out on being selected for Rio at the last moment. And Steve's wife, Caroline, who'd never done anything like that before, we went down to the wilds of Patagonia and cycled for a month along a route called Carretera Austral, but basically it's just a dirt road through the middle of the Patagonian wilderness. And it was just, you know, camping in the wilds at the roadside, wherever we could find, living on porridge. And somehow I came back from that trip and was healed, cancelled my shoulder surgery and suddenly was excited about riding my bike again. <laughs> and that excitement hasn't dwindled to this day. 
Karen's now leading a project called Quest 79, a series of incredible adventures she's using as a vehicle to raise money for amazing causes. The little birdie told me she's also training for Tokyo in 2021. I for one can't wait to see her backhand cycling again. And that's the final episode of the series. What an amazing journey it's been. So please revisit all of the episodes if you haven't already. There's some fantastic stories in there from the likes of Ironman Tim Don, ultra runner Jasmine Paris and legendary cyclist Mark Bowman. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please continue to use the hashtag Red Bull How To Be Superhuman on all socials. And we'll see you next time. How To Be Superhuman is a something else production for Red Bull Media House.